So, uh, so thankful to have you guys here. Um, got some old friends that are here tonight, grateful for that as well. And I, um, four years ago or so, uh, I knew absolutely uh, nothing, nothing about cars. I had a 1992 a Pontiac Sunfire was my first vehicle. And um, I bottomed that car out and blew up the engine. And then I had a 1998 red Dodge Avenger. You guys remember the Dodge Avenger? And I was uh, traveling a lot. We were, I was in a band. I know many of you guys know that. Uh, it was a poor decision on my part, but I was in a band and led a lot of retreats and stuff. And so I had a trailer that I connected to my a Dodge Avenger. So I had a, a hitch on the back of my four-cylinder, which was a bad idea, and blew up that engine. And um, at any one of those moments, my guess is some of you relate to me in this, that, you know, like, you, you know something has gone wrong with your vehicle because every light on the dashboard, it's like all of a sudden it's Christmas time, you know what I'm saying? And you're in the insides of your car, you know, the check engine lights come on, the you're an idiot stop light has come on, you know, the, there's like something coming through the steering wheel punching you saying pull over. And especially when you're with some friends, um, and I'll just speak for myself, especially when I'm with some friends, you know, you know something's wrong with your car, and so you pull over. Again, me in those days not knowing anything, uh, I, would, I would look 100% like I knew what I was doing, you know? So the first thing you reach for, and, you know, and I'm, again, I'm acting all this out, oh, man, we better look under the hood, you know? Well, the problem is I'm not familiar where the latch of the hood is, you know? <laughs> So I'm kind of like, you know, fumbling around, you know, I'm like hitting the radio volume button, you know, thinking that that pops the hood or something. Finally, I find it. Some of you guys have been there before. Then you're standing in front of this engine, right? And again, not knowing anything about it. And come on, just about every one of us has done this, right? You're like, oh, look, you know, you're not sure what you're looking for, right? Like, are you looking for a squirrel that has like run into the engine? You know, like, what are you looking for? She's like, oh, look, I bet it's the carbonator, you know, and you realize later that there's not a such thing as a carbonator, you know, it's a carburetor, right? And you're like, oh, oh, look, the oil looks bad. And you realize that you're looking at the windshield wiper fluid, you know, and, and right, like I, I've had that moment over and over where I'm just like trying to fake it until I make it. Oh, look, it's the flux capacitor, I bet. It's completely off here. You know, we need to change the f- flux capacitor. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of you guys do that, not with cars, but computers, right? So like, your computer, your phone isn't working right, and you want to look like you know what you're doing, and so you start where everyone, everyone in the world does, and that's you give it a restart, you know? Oh, I bet it, I bet it just needs a restart, you know? And, and so you, you hit, the, hit the restart, and your iPhone has the black screen of death, or, you know, the, the computer comes up all blue. There's many moments in our life where we know there's a problem, we know there's an issue, but at times we, we just... We just can't quite pinpoint it or act like enough that we know what's going on. And uh, that brings us tonight to what I want to propose to you to be one of, if not the greatest issues that you and I as friends and brothers and sisters are facing. Uh, That issue is this next slide. We have underestimated how horrific sin is. We know there's a problem. We even act like that we can, you know, diagnose it. But I want to propose to you tonight that we have grossly underestimated 
the horrific nature of sin. The reason why that's uh, important for us tonight is because we come to probably the three most important verses that Paul ever writes about sin. Uh, These three verses have been taught, preached, communicated, studied in Bible studies, and ultimately have created a ton of heaviness through them. And so tonight, piece by piece, slowly, only working through three verses, we're going to walk through one of the most intense descriptions of just how horrific sin really is. Now, this is coming uh, in a letter that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And I don't want us to, uh, to get misguided. It's very easy when we study small sections of Scripture to forget the overall context. So let me remind you again, it's Paul writing this from a jail cell. He's on house arrest in Rome. He is very, very interested in seven or eight years now removed from his visit in Ephesus to encourage this church that he loves. And so he has wrote a very um, powerful, boastful in Christ chapter one. Uh, A very long run-on sentence we studied and saw. But tonight in chapter two, all of a sudden, a a different tone initially. So open your Bibles, my friends. Ephesians chapter 2. Maybe the most poignant words that Paul writes on sin. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Paul says, Again, we're not going to move too quickly here, so I just want to start phrase by phrase. Next slide. Let's start with this phrase initially, you were. So he's writing to the church. Again, this letter is going to be circulated not just in Ephesus, but in Asia Minor, so many churches are going to read this. Many churches are going to hear this in a, a public a declaration. So he's writing to the church. So he's writing, because he's writing to the church, he's writing in past tense, you were. Well, the question is, what would be the benefit in Paul's um, teaching on sin to begin verse 1 with you were? I want to propose two benefits to you. The first is this. Next slide. Some of you guys grew up doing this. Does some of you guys have the measuring tape in your rooms, right? Okay, none of us. Good. Um, well, in some American households, and I'm sure some worldwide households as well, to, to measure how quickly a child is, is growing. You put a tape measure right by the door, and in this case, you know, good old Callie, we measure her height at two years and three years, and we can see just how quickly she is growing up. So I think one of Paul's intentions in reminding the church you were is to say, look back and remember just how far you've grown. Look back and remember who you used to be. Maybe if you look back and remember who you used to be, it'll put into massive perspective now who you are. But I think that's just a piece of the capture. I think the other reason why he says you were is this. I believe and I want to propose to you that I think as this letter is read in the church, Paul wants his readers to feel it. 
he wants his readers to feel and sense the emotions and the reality of who they used to be. He wants them to remember the depth of the burden. He wants them to remember the weight that was pressed down on their shoulders. He wants them to remember what it felt like to be in the deepest pit possible. So he says to the church, and you were. So their minds are now thinking past tense. Next slide, we see then this word. You were dead. Well, uh, many of you could argue that this isn't the way to encourage the church. Okay, you've just uh, written a beautiful chapter, Paul, on worshiping and blessing God. And now in verse 2, all of a sudden we're taking a like massive shift. And you're like bringing out deadness and you're bringing out who we were. Like, Paul, are, are you wanting us to get into this place of you know, previous Jesus depression? Like, Paul, what's, what's your intention here? When he says the word dead, he's pointing to a very harsh reality. That harsh reality is this, that every person from the garden on, so every person who was born from Adam and Eve on, was born in a spiritual coffin. In other words, we were born with beating hearts. We were born walking. But every single one of us, from Adam and Eve on, born in a coffin in terms of our spirituality. We were born dead. Now, I know that uh, many of you guys have heard or watched the show uh, Walking Dead. And... Um, I've seen an episode or two myself. And I'm enamored by our cultural obsession with zombies. Is anyone else? It's just really, really interesting when you, you know, step back and the way I've argued it before is, well, ultimately The Walking Dead is about teamwork and ultimately The Walking Dead is about survival and all those things may be true. But I wonder if there's something deep within us that resonates with the reality of the walking dead. In other words, we wouldn't even be able to pinpoint it. But I wonder if there's something innately in us, deep within us, that remembers what it was like to be walking around but still dead. That remembers what it was like to have a, a beating heart, even seemingly having life in us, but all the while spiritually dead. I want to propose to you that I think there's a lot of us that resonate with that reality because that's exactly who we were. Now, there's some implications, next slide, about those of us who once were spiritually dead, there's a certain level of results that that spiritual deadness produces. So the results of being spiritually dead, let's say this. Number one, you spend your life frantically searching for resuscitation. Like frantically searching. 
Uh, imagine uh, yourself choking on something. And the frantic nature that goes into that life or death moment. Uh, the image that I had here that came to mind, uh, I actually endured myself. Heidi and I and a couple friends of ours were on a spring break trip. And me and my buddy decided to go out into the sea on a little Walmart raft. And uh, what, what ended up happening is we ended up getting caught in the surf. So the two of us on a much too small for two men raft, uh, getting very, very close to one another, we ended up getting caught in the surf with like two little Walmart oars. And so what ended up happening in the moment is we could see the shore and we were frantically paddling, but literally going nowhere. It was one of the worst moments I've ever experienced. We had to be saved literally by another boat. It was like we could see the shore and as, and as hard as we paddled and as much as we tried to, you know, move our legs and, you know, maneuver our weight, like we, we just could not get anywhere. When you're spiritually dead, you spend your life looking for that thing that's finally going to resuscitate you, finally going to, you know, provide some offering of life. Uh, some of you remember what that was like because you remember the exhaustion. Some of you are in that moment right now because you know the exhaustion. Paddling hard, getting nowhere, frantically looking for it. That's one of the results of being spiritually dead. Another result of being spiritually dead is this. Hope goes only as far as your imagination. When you're spiritually dead, all you can do is try to conjure up essences of hope. In other words, you live your life with maybes. When you're spiritually dead, there's no absolute truth. When you're spiritually dead, devoid of God, all you've got is, well, maybe this will work out. Well, maybe this God is going to provide me something over here. Well, maybe this relationship will finally open the door to the resuscitation that I've been so frantically searching for. All you got is your imagination in terms of hope. That's the reality of spiritual deadness. And lastly, one of the results of being spiritually dead, though there's many, many more, you exist in an unending identity crisis. You have no no idea of who you are. When you're spiritually dead, the wind is defining your identity. And wherever the wind blows, and whatever the day brings, and whatever the sorrow of the moment, and whatever the joy that you think, or the happiness that seems to evade you, all of those things, and sometimes hundreds of them in a day, fluctuate your identity. When you're spiritually dead, you're in an unending mode of identity crisis. Now, uh, the question about all of this is, is, okay, if this is true, why do we exist in a culture that struggles so much with the concept of the sin nature, right? One of the teachings that we hear consistently in our culture is, well, well people are mostly good counter the fact that we're all born in a coffin. Again, you don't hear that teaching very much, even in Christendom. We are born in a coffin. We are born dead. We are born with a sin nature. Culture comes against that with a massive throw of, no, 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 no. Look around you. Look at the humanitarian efforts. 
Look at the good people that are around the corner from you. Look at that good work that that person did. We get combated, our children get combated with a different kind of doctrine. Next slide, I want to show you why. It's this reason right here. Now, person A, when you watch person A, when you see person A, I mean, they are unbelievable in, their ter- in terms of their civic service. I mean, they go out of their way to serve their neighbors. They have been hospitable. And so everyone then, based on those factors of their character, sits back and says things like, well, they are a good person. You guys have said things like that as well. I have said things about that as well. Man, they're just, they're a good person. Then you have person B. Well, person B, I mean, it's very, very easy to find out the person B isn't a good person. I mean, person B doesn't even own to be a good person. Person B doesn't even present himself to be a good person or herself, whatever, you know, whatever this emoji is in terms of gender. It's, it's, it's an ownership, actually, of the opposite. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I display my anger and frustration. I generally hate people. Here's my point. When you pit person up against person, you understand? We will see some people sin less or more. And so it gives the perception, well, we must be born with with the nature then that can be good. Maybe we're not born dead in a coffin spiritually. Maybe there's glimmer of hope. But then anyone who's ever had, uh, who has had children, you know quite the opposite. Right? I mean, they're so beautiful. I talk about it often here. Like, they're so beautiful and cuddly. And you kiss all over them. And the moment they can talk, they lie. <laughs> and the moment they don't get their way, they cry. Here's what I'm saying. When we relate to people, when we set people as the bar, we are going to find people who sin less and who have more heart of humanitarian service. But when both of these people are pitted up against Christ, do you see now what happens? When person A and person B both are put up against in comparison to the perfection of Jesus. Now do you see what happens? Now all of a sudden, we're not so good anymore in comparison to the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb in Christ. This is why then, no matter how many humanitarian acts person A does, or no matter how many sinful acts person B does, there is a common need. There's also a common reality. Born in the coffin spiritually. So, we're dead. We were, Paul says, dead. We're walking around, used to be walking around, have beating hearts. Next slide. Then he says we're dead in something. We're dead in the trespasses and sins, he says. Now, um, to trespass, in a very simple way, it's to deviate. There's a plan, we deviate. Uh, the word sin has, a, has an archery image. It's a miss-the-mark idea. But I want to point your attention to the word in. 
In other words, we are born in our trespasses and sins. You don't become a trespasser and a sinner at the moment that you do. You're born into it. And so Paul begins with a very, very harsh reality. One that our culture is bucking at every turn. We are literally born dead towards the Lord. Then to add to his uh, definition, he goes on to say this in verses 2 through 3a. You were dead in the trespasses and sins, he says in verse 2, in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I want to point your attention, next slide, to these these three phrases. Paul um, brings up our three greatest battles or the three greatest adversaries to our oneness with God. Next slide, let's say it this way. It is the world, Satan, and our flesh. Spiritually dead, we are born enslaved to these three things, Paul's saying. We were born dead, we were born enslaved. Now, do you guys understand already how heart-wrenching this is? Uh, I say it all the time when we baptize seven, eight, nine-year-olds, where it's a, it's a cute thing. Oh, look at the seven-year-old girl who's getting baptized. Isn't that cute? How, how precious this beautiful seven-year-old who would, you know, claim Jesus. Instead, do you understand what's happened? The seven-year-old enslaved by these three things all of a sudden is professing their faith in King Jesus. Do you understand now a little bit of the weight of sin? What I'm telling you, church, listen, is we have underestimated how heavy it is and we've allowed ourselves to feed into the concepts that sin is essentially cute. Even when our three or four-year-olds sin against us parents and they disobey us, and Scripture makes clear that when they disobey their parents, it's sin. It's so easy to laugh at it because they're just so darn cute. Listen, my son Maddox, I struggle disciplining that kid ever. Struggle, struggle. Because inevitably, the moment he knows that he has done wrong, he comes, sits on my lap, starts kissing all over my cheeks, you know, wraps his little deceptive arms around my neck. <laughs> and seriously, like everything in that moment is like, this, he, he has to be, he has to be spanked. And I find what, what happens in my heart is I'm just like, yeah, but he's kissing me. And yeah, it's, that's the way sin disguises itself. Listen, that's the way we've underestimated it. We're not teaching our children the weight of sin. We're not growing up understanding the weight of sin. The church isn't owning enough the weight of sin. And so because of that, guess what? We just all get to frolic in the valley of sin. Well, I want to walk through the agendas of, of these three things because 
if these are three of the things that Paul says we're following, then we have to understand the agenda. Next slide. The agenda of the world is clear. Uh, The Greek phrasing here, following the course of this world, uh, implies there's a submission to the way that the world is going. There's a following to the direction of the world. It's why later in Paul, uh, Paul writes in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the patterns of this what? World will be transformed. It's the same concept. So naturally what happens in us, the way we're born, we are born into this, well, wherever the world goes, we'll go. Whatever this uh, teaches, we'll embrace. Whatever this screen shows us, will believe to be true. And the one thing that dominates the understanding of the world's agenda is you. It's why we love it so much. It's why we're so drawn to it. It's why the agenda of the world is luring. Because ultimately, it's all about you. Self-preservation, self-pleasure, self-condemnation. Mark, why would self-condemnation be luring? Because we want to feel sorry for ourselves. Why would self-pleasure be luring, Mark? Because when the time gets tough and all of a sudden our day is bad, there has to be a way to make ourself feel better. And the world is just fostering more and more and more of it. Hey, listen, listen, just, just do you, man. Just do you. Like, you, you, you have to figure yourself out. You have to build your kingdom Your life is ultimately the best when it's structured around you and everyone else knows it. Don't you find it interesting that when Jesus came, he said that if anyone wants to come after me, he has to to deny, you guys know the next word? Himself. I'm just asking, why do you think he would say that? It must be because he knows that the world's agenda, including the disciples around him, is beckoning their life to be about them. Make sure you stay up with your neighbors. Make sure the home improvements can keep up with those around you. Make sure when your kids are out in public, they keep their mouths shut so that everyone knows you're an awesome parent. And on and on we go. The world's agenda is about you. Now, this is the point of the evening where you either uh, decide to um, deal with the reality or you decide to continue to ignore it. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, Satan. I've talked about before that I've had some very... um, interesting interactions with people who have both been tormented by demons who have experienced the reality of spiritual warfare and I just want to confirm something that some of you doubt is Satan is a very very real enemy and the moment that we um, take lightly the spiritual warfare around us is the moment he has us right where he wants us 
One of the most influential books I read on Satan was a, a book called The Screwtape Letters, a fictional account by C.S. Lewis, who was trying to help us understand what it must be like to be in the mind of demons, what their strategy might be. So I want to show you what the agenda of Satan is. Next slide. It is this. Satan's agenda is this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And just in case uh, we're not on the same page, the Greek word for devour here has no other definition but devour. So devour isn't give pleasantries or a nice hug. Devour here means to come after. In John 10.10, talking about the thief, Jesus says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus was tempted by Satan face to face, and the only parts of Matthew uses God's word to confront the temptation and shows us the power of the truth that when you resist the devil, he will flee just as he did in the person of Christ. But it does not negate the reality that he's coming after us. Now, can we, can we, have, some, can we have some real talk right now? Is that cool? Okay. Uh, I want you to imagine uh, I have a 10-year-old daughter. Do you guys understand the severity of the things that we're talking about now. If you're a parent and you want to believe for one second that the enemy isn't coming after your unsaved children, I'm just saying wake up. There's a reason why in our partnership with Ecuador now, me and my family go in there next week and a week from Saturday. There's a reason why we focused our attention on praying that the bondage that these kids find themselves in would be broken. Why? Because it is spiritual warfare over their souls. Are you guys starting to see what I'm, what I'm proposing? We talk about all this stuff like it's cute. We just picture Satan like he's in a red costume at a Halloween party. But when I sit back and read the word, there's something different that happens. You wonder why your marriage is under attack. You wonder why the lies are so prominent in your ear. You're worth nothing. There's no way he'll forgive you. Hey, yeah, you need to remember who you were because nothing's changed. Imagine the lies you believed just Today, in Christ, we're protected. But I'm telling you right now, he is coming after us. Embedding lies, planting truth, and those that don't have the protection of Christ. I want to make sure you understand something very clear. It is a scary reality that you live in. Satan's agenda is to come and devour and steal and kill and destroy. And ultimately, the scripture calls him the father of lies. The last agenda of our flesh is made crystal clear in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. The agenda of the flesh. The go-to of the flesh. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity, strife, 
jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and just in case there's some asterisks that are forgotten and things like these. So what you have now is a three-pronged attack born into a spiritual coffin where the world says, come on. It's all about you. Build your kingdom, live your life, do things that make you happy. And then the enemy, with the world as a strength around you, starts whispering lies, starts adding in components, starts luring you into temptation, while all the while the sin nature itself, your flesh, raging war, Next slide, do you guys understand now the power of what the spiritually dead are enslaved to? Are you kidding me? Apart from Christ, this three-pronged attack is unbelievably powerful. I'm not saying this has been the case in every situation. But I'm just asking. When there's been a point in your life, and particularly pre-Christ, when you found yourself at your wit's end, and some of you have contemplated doing things to yourself that you never thought you would ever, ever do, I had to do a funeral of a 12-year-old suicide early in my ministry. And I want to make sure you understand something. There is nothing cute about these three things. Well, what happens in all of this, next slide, it brings us back to this statement. As I was studying, learning, growing, so richly impacted by this truth. So what I want to show you now is when we begin to underestimate the horrific nature of sin, what we're all born into, I want you to see some truth that I pray you'll resonate with and be challenged by. Next slide. When you underestimate sin, number one, the need of Jesus vanishes. This is why this problem is so dangerous in the church, in our homes, at the moment, the precise moment we begin to underestimate sin, it's the moment we look around and believe the lie that the world is telling us. Why would we need Jesus, if sin really isn't an issue. Just a little, you know, just a little thorn in our flesh. We quote some scripture to make ourselves feel better. One of the things Heidi and I work hard on, we make a lot of failures as parents, struggle with consistency. One of the things that we work really, really hard at is helping our kids see the need. I've shared this before, and I know some of you differ in this philosophy 
were very, very uh, intentional about not covering their eyes. We're very intentional about getting them back in the car as they've just heard someone cuss out someone else in a restaurant and walking them through what's going on. Instead of making it sound like, well, those, they really didn't say those words. That, that was actually, that, yeah, it, it actually was this. Instead of lying to them, we've worked hard at showing them the depth of sin so they know why they need Jesus so much. Uh, some of you did not grow up in a home like that at all. In fact, many of you grew up where sin was never talked about because, like, issues and confrontation. It was like, no, 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 let's just, let's just sweep that under the rug and act like it never happened. Anyone grow up in homes like that? So do you see what you learned? You learned, like, we're not going to deal with sin because, really, at the end of the day, it's not, it's not that big a deal. It's not a big a deal enough to actually have to talk about it. So let's just, let's just not deal with it. We'll sweep it under the rug and we'll, we'll act like it's all good. Do you understand now the damage of that? Because it teaches everyone, not just in the household, but in relationships, in dating relationships, in marriages, that sin isn't important enough or, or horrific enough to be dealt with. And in so doing, the need of Jesus goes away. Why would you need Jesus if there's not a sin problem? I'm just asking. And I'll answer that. I'll answer my own question, my own rhetorical question in saying, it's what we've made Jesus. Often in culture, he's just a nice teacher, guys. He's a good prophet. Man, he sure did some cool miracles. But in terms of answering the sin problem, I'm not sure that I actually even need that. I'm doing just fine on my own. When you underestimate sin, number two, compassion is replaced with hatred. Let me explain what I mean. When you underestimate the reality of sin, then when someone sins, come on now. You don't find yourself compassionate towards the struggle. Instead, you find yourself hating the person. When you yourself, minutes before, minutes before, struggled with the exact same thing, all of a sudden it happens in someone else, compassion is lost, grace is lost, and instead, I hate that person, I can't believe that person would do such a thing. Do you understand what we're communicating when we make statements like that, especially about non-believers? I say it all the time here, why do we expect a non-believer to act like a Christian? The three-pronged attack is coming at them naturally. It's where, it's where they're born, my friends. And we have the audacity as believers. I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they would talk to me like that. I can't believe they would harm my family like that. When you underestimate the power of sin, then all of a sudden you see everyone through judgmental hate-filled eyes. I hope it's resonating in some of you. Number three, when you underestimate sin, this happens. Next slide. Next slide here if you can. You have precisely taken the bait. Now, I'm not a fisherman at all. You guys know this. Not outdoorsy, okay? Uh, my definition of outdoors is the Holiday Inn, all right? That's my definition, okay? 
When you underestimate sin, do you understand? This is precisely where the enemy wants you. Hey, think it's cute, everyone. Don't worry about it. It's been taken care of on the cross. Listen, Satan, Satan believes in who Jesus is and even shudders at it. So don't you think he's going to shift and slant some of those same truths? It's exactly what he did in the garden. Did God really say? We have taken the bait when we begin to underestimate sin. Next slide, number four. When you underestimate sin, you become numb. This is where so many of you are at right now, numb to the darkness. When the weight and the gravity of sin as a non-believer, and I'll even make the extension as a believer, when you become, uh, when, you, when you see it as something insignificant, you just grow numb to it. What was once quick, uh, quick conviction? What was once uh, you could just walk in an area where people were struggling and feel this heaviness and darkness because light and darkness don't mix. All of a sudden now you've just, you've just become completely numb to it. And as a non-believer, there's, just, there's complete numbness all of the time. This is the reality of where they're at. And finally, number five, when you underestimate sin, ownership is overrun by blame. One of the first things that I, I see in the sin nature of my children is blame. One of the things I see most often in you and I is blame. The reason why it's connected to a misinterpretation of sin is because when you realize the sheer weight and heaviness of sin, it causes you to believe deeper and deeper that you need something to answer the problem. And so in so doing, you realize the nature that you exist in because you long to find the answer in the thing that you're even tonight learning about. Now, all of these things, massive, massive issues. Next slide. But it sets us up for this, this last aspect of verse three. So we're dead spiritually, born in a spiritual coffin. We are enslaved to the world, to Satan, to our flesh, devoid of God. And the end of verse 3 says this, And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, um, this is not a, um, an excitable cultural teaching. You start talking about the wrath of God, people start getting a little leery. They start kind of turning their ears a little bit. What happens in our, in our nature, born with that three-pronged attack, is we were children of wrath. Now, next slide. Let me show you the principle of where this comes from, from Matthew 25, as Jesus is talking about judgment. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. You've aligned yourself with the enemy. And because you've aligned yourself with the enemy, 
then you align yourself with the enemy forever. Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Next slide. He goes on. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into, into eternal punishment for the righteous into eternal life. What's happened in our culture is we have lessened hell so much because we've underestimated sin. What happens is, and I was talking to my dear brother about this, is I'm just asking, how many funerals do you go to, my friends, where the people are in a better place? I'm just asking, have you ever been to a funeral where that hasn't been the claim? Think about it. I'm just speaking for myself. Every funeral I have ever been, the person is always in a better place. First of all, there's confusion. It's not a better place. It's the best place. So that's the first issue. But the second issue is the road to Christ is narrow. And the road to destruction, Jesus says, is wide. So it can't be that 100% of the people who are claiming good works are in glory. It must be, it must be that our culture has created this idea that in the end, all will be in glory with the Lord. And that is not true. Jesus says, you deny my father and he will deny you. In another place in scripture, Jesus says that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And I will say to me, I, I don't know you. We're born children of wrath. So what starts to happen at this point in your heart and certainly in mine is there's this angst, this tension now that's been created. Uh, hopefully and prayerfully, you're starting to realize that maybe you have lessened the horrific nature of sin in your own life. Maybe you've lessened who you once were. Uh, for some of you not in Christ, maybe you've lessened your state. And apart from God, your state right now is desperate, a child of wrath. The enemy coming after you, your nature, your flesh coming after you, the world coming after you. It seems as though everything is bleak. Next slide. Next slide if you can't hear, Sean. Thanks, brother. For those who remain spiritually dead, there is no escape from God's wrath. So for those who, who end in the spiritual deadness, Devoid of God, there is no escape from that wrath. So these three verses, Paul's maybe greatest work on sin, I want to try to summarize it for you. Let's summarize it like this. We are all born 
into a spiritual coffin. Our sin is horrific and has tragic consequences. Our lives will forever be empty, hopeless, and forever and eternally without peace. So I ask you, my friends, in all the remembrance of where you were, in all the reality of where you are now, do you now, maybe for the first time in your entire life, understand the weight of the sinfulness of sin? Next slide. 